Good morning and welcome to a different kind of talking point this morning. I'm being let out of studio and down to Marion Square to the Department of Antishuk for a fireside chat beside the actual fireplace in the Taoiseach's office. Before we go in, the Taoiseach himself with Chief Whip Regina Doherty and Ministers Pascal Donoghue and Joe McHugh have joined a choir composed entirely of staff from the Department of Antishuk for the annual carol service. The Little Drummer Boy from the staff of the Department of Antishak. Afterwards, I went up to the Taoiseach's office and sat down for a chat. Underneath a portrait of Michael Collins, beside a huge Christmas tree lit predictably in blue, and the Taoiseach informed me I was sitting in the same chair as Queen Elizabeth when she visited. So I began by asking the Taoiseach about his children. Our three children are now 24, 22 and 20. Two have finished college and, and one's in college. So they're all coming home and I think that's going to be uh, the first time that they will have been all together. You know, for a couple of weeks, I suppose, they've been travelling during the summer to Southeast Asia and J1s in America and so on like that. So it's a great time for young people, I suppose, to get together and renew acquaintances. So they're always in touch on Facebook and this kind of thing with their, with their own friends. But Christmas generally is a time for families and, you know, it's always important to remember that message. and. Uh, Yet it's all too often we see, you know, tragedies and sorrow in mm. lots of families. So while it's it's an occasion for 
family get-togethers for many, for others it's a, it's a time of um, sadness and sorrow. I suppose we not taking it for granted, I suppose that's what it's about, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah, and obviously, you know, times have changed and the world has changed and communications have changed and Christmas is a different thing now because, yeah, years ago it was, you know, a huge issue to look forward to. But the way commercialisation has come into everything from, from Valentine's Day to Easter to Father's Day and Mother's Day and all of the other occasions, Christmas is another is another commercial date on the calendar and while for Christians it's, a, it's of very particular significance in terms of their religion, uh, it's also an opportunity following the advent of Black Friday in America mm. for people to be involved in, bombarded with so many opportunities to I've, spend or to buy. I have an uncle in Cavan who says it's all capitalist society creating a need for the trash it produces. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's his line. Well, and as a result we weren't given Easter yeah. eggs. But I mean, you know, uh, where I come from in the west of Ireland, obviously it was all the time for immigrants to come back home mm. and you'd see them around from the different places uh, always coming back at Christmas time and, and that was a, a great tradition. This still applies in fact. Mm -hmm. And it is a lovely time of the year for people to get together and talk and reminisce and um, be excited about things and we hope that they you know, have that for, for, um, for many years to come. My dad and I did <coughs> interview with Miriam O'Callaghan, you know the one where she interviews um, relations and um, he's not a man given to expressing sentiment or mm -hmm. articulating much reflection. He's a very shy man, <laughs> daddy, isn't he? And she asked him did he have any regrets and to my shock he said actually he was sorry he put so much time into politics, that there were so many times when my mother had brought us off places and he couldn't mm -hmm. go. And obviously your job has mm. taken you away a lot. Do you have any regrets or ever feel guilty about well, being away from them so much? No more than any other profession, uh, public service is a calling, really. Uh, and if you don't like people or you don't like meeting people or you don't like being engaged in trying to better the lives of people, then you shouldn't be in this job. So I couldn't do this, to be quite honest with you, if my wife Fanula didn't understand intimately what politics is about. Because we couldn't do it otherwise. The calls are, are, are very frequent. They can be very irregular. You get thousands of occasions where you miss out on family events. But in a modern world, you know, whether you're, whether you're a long-distance lorry driver or an airline pilot or a business person who's working in England or abroad, uh, you know, families these days are, are, are divided by time and country depending on the business that's involved or what the circumstances might be. So I would think that probably when, when, when your dad reflects on his life in politics, he wouldn't have changed a bit of it because he's made so many friends uh, and so many contacts and so many, you know, events and issues that he was involved in and, with, and that he helped change for the better. So while he would say to you, that he might regret all, all the time he involved. He wouldn't change a bit of that, and I'm quite sure that for your mother, uh, she had to put up with a lot the same as everybody else in politics does, but that's the way life is. But I can guarantee you, deep down, Willie Carey would not change his life in politics at all. And you love it, do you? I do, and it's the challenge of it, because every day is different. And, you know, when you get to a point of privilege where I happen to be the Taoiseach and leader of a government, these crises come at you like, uh, you know, an avalanche and a wave every day. You just never know where the next issue is going to arise internationally or nationally or whatever. And it's always a case of, you know, trying to work with a team that has a programme and a strategy and a plan 
uh, and follow that in the interests of the people. I think, you know, the, the most important thing you can have in politics is peace of mind. That you're not bought by anybody, you're not in anybody's pocket, you try to make the best decisions in the interests of the people and try to help improve people's lives. And that's what making political decisions is about. And they're never easy. Because in the time of recession, when you had to cut salaries and, and suspend salaries and take things away of people, it's always hard, always difficult. And if you didn't do that, we'd still be back in that economic mess that we were in. That's not saying that we don't have challenges. We do. But if you manage it carefully in the people's interest, at least you've got a chance to grow and prosper in the time ahead. When you're done, what do you want people to say about you? Uh, well, I, I don't want them to say anything. I just want them to understand that I leave the country in a much better place than I found it. Uh, that they're, they're going to have a, a, an opportunity to be comfortable in their lives and that their children will have opportunity and, you know, the chance to, to have a career in what is a very changing world. <laughs> I looked at a picture of New York the other day in 1905. 100,000 horses in New York. 20 years later, all those thousands of jobs for farriers and wheelwrights and wagon makers and harness makers, they were all gone because the car had come along and Henry Ford had changed all that. So there were thousands and thousands of new jobs. And the same is going to happen now in the next 20 years. If you travel on the M50 in whatever condition it's going to be in 2036, most of the cars will be driverless. Mm. Most of them will have been manufactured by 3D printers and maybe attended to by robots. So we live in that changing world with the cloud, which in many respects is the fourth industrial revolution. So that's why, for instance, you have to change the nature of apprenticeships and training so that the young people who are now in the primary system and the secondary system are going to grow up in a very different world than even you have grown up in because the language is different in terms of the apps and the communications and the technology. So we've got to be, we've got to be very you know, flexible as a small country with a, a strong uh, bubbling education system so that you give those who have that flair and that inventiveness the opportunity to create that dimension for Ireland. And do you think you're doing that? That you're preparing well, that I think, way? I think you can, only, you can only provide those opportunities if you have an engine to drive your country. And that's an economy that's well managed, where you can provide services for people. Now, for instance, we now have over 13,000 SNA, special needs assistants, in the schools. Mm -hmm. And that's right and proper when children have a challenge and, you know, you must give them the best chance to deal with that. But right up through the system, you've got to be looking to the future. If you're, you know, uh, a surfer at sea, uh, you don't want, you're not watching a wave that's 20 feet away. You're watching one that's a half a mile out that's really going to carry you to shore. And the trick is, if trick it is, how do you determine where the next wave is coming from? Is it going to be in precision engineering or financial services? Or what's the next uh, Zuckerberg? What's the next Facebook? They're out there in the system and they're thinking and they're working and some of them one of these days is going to make the next discovery. Elon Musk wants to go to Mars. You know, you discover all the endless infinity of space, if that might be a double use of the one word, if you like. Um, and all of these things are impacting on us. Climate change, uh, you know, uh, food security, drought, impacted on by emissions, wars and all of these things. Politics is about all of that. And you might say, 
these things don't affect us down in Enfield or down in Clannacilty or Westport or whatever, but they do. Because if you look at the, uh, the famous shot from space of Earth, that little blue pixel in the inky blackness is where you are. And that's the only place we have to be. And so we've got to make the best of it while we are here. And in politics, that's what you've got to do. Make decisions. Politics is about people. Government is about making decisions. What about keeping friends? So people like James Riley and Alan Shatter and that, that you've had to say, the jig's up, lads. Do you think you'll be able to leave politics with political friends, or is that something you have to forego to in the name of the job? Uh, you know, there are different kinds of uh, friendships. Obviously, from a purely personal point of view, you've got your immediate, uh, your immediate connections or family. Uh, you know, if you played sport, you'd have teammates that you'd always associate school schoolmates or whatever. Um, politics is, as a profession, um, uh, as James Dillon used to say in a much better fashion than I, he said, you know, it draws you into stormy waters as well as calm. Uh, and he said, if you don't feel it as that profession, get out as quick as you can. And he, he went on to say, you know, uh, that while it's good to dream dreams and to see visions, it's well to remember that the fundamental maxim of successful politics is that united you stand or divided you fall. So of course, in any political party or any political family, you're going to have rows. I might have this view, you might have that view. We can disagree. It can go beyond disagreement. It can be really strong difference or contradictions or points of view. At the end of the day, that's what democracy is about. Um, and I think the important thing is that you have the courage and the belief to make decisions and move on. And you bring some with you and you lose some, of course. But when it's all over, I would never let politics interfere with a friendship. I think Thomas Jefferson put that very well. Uh, he, he said that, you know, it's much too important while we're in this mortal world to have your friends and hold on to them. And while you might have differences of opinion, our political issues might divide you. That shouldn't be, you know, a determinant to say, I would never speak to him or her again. I don't believe in that. We can have our arguments, have our differences, uh, but we can be friends in life. But is that easy to say when you're the one in charge and you're getting to decide who's in and who's out? Well, in terms of the, if that question you're asking me is, mm. who do you appoint to government? Mm. That's the prerogative of the teacher of the day. But in reality, you know, if you're, if, you're sharing, if you're sharing a government, let's say with the Labour Party, I would have sat down with him in Gilmore at the time and said, OK, look, you have an entitled X number here, so um, let's, let's figure well, out... What about, what say, point. Alan Shatter? I kind of felt <coughs> sorry for him. I know how that whole narrative unfolded, you know, and it was just getting messier and messier and messier every week. But looking back on it, it looks like actually he didn't do much wrong and he still ended up losing his no, job well and his seat, you know. No, and he was, he was confirmed as, uh, as not having been negligent by the O'Higgins report, yeah. uh, which, uh, which I um, fully understood and have said that publicly before. But obviously he decided himself in, in the letter that he wrote to me to stand down uh, on the basis that he did not want uh, the government disrupted. Uh, by any of that, and it was very, uh, very forthright and very, very s strong statement in writing from him. Mm. Um, and of course, when the O'Higgins report came in, I've acknowledged that, 
and that he was not negligent in his duty as Minister for Justice. Do you think you'd be able to repair that relationship in the future? Well, um, I've, I've, I've... Or does it matter to you? Is it important uh, no, to you of, that of you course, do? Of uh, course, as you go through life, as you go through life in politics, of course you want to be... You want, you want, you want to be on a, a good relationships with people. It doesn't always work. Um, and obviously there are some whom I've met along my political journey who may never speak to me again. Uh, and yet, you know, you've got to feel that what you decisions you had to make, uh, yeah, you have to make them. Mm. It's not easy. And it's, uh, in many ways, you might say it's a lousy thing to have to say to somebody, look, you know, Jim Gavin has to do this with the Dublin team or Stephen Watcher with the Mayo team. You know, you're part of a setup here and I'm sorry you can't be the number one today, you know. I'm going to bring you on or play you in a different place. Happens in all walks of life. Sometimes in business they can be absolutely ruthless. In politics, you know, you grow up understanding the complexities of people, the challenges they have, the personalities and human nature. Not an easy thing to do, but like you are charged with heading up a government for the country. Um, it's not, you're never going to have a day where everybody says, oh, this is wonderful. <laughs> the sun is always shining. Believe me, I deal with so many issues and problems. Um, know you get enough in a week to keep it going for a lifetime. And what about something this week you know that's going on down in Apollo House where people are just so angry and they feel mm. enough isn't being done. Now I get that the housing crisis is a long-term thing mm. you know it's, it's going to take 10 years to sort out. Yeah. How do you persuade people in the meantime that for you that actually is well, a look, priority? I understand. I understand the frustration here mm. and I understand how concerned people can be when you have rough sleepers are those who are homeless for whatever reason, be it personal rows, be it addictions, be it drink, be it because of rent increases or whatever. And so the duty of government, if you like, uh, is to deal with that consequence. Now one of the first things that I did with this government was to appoint a senior minister for housing. We backed that with a plan for five billion over the next number of years in a range of pillars. One of those pillars is to deal with homeless uh, people and those rough sleepers. So in Dublin this weekend, there'll be 1,800 emergency beds. So there are beds available tonight for anybody who's looking for a bed. But you see, Sarah, it's not just about a bed. Because I was in Ellis Street there last week where 70 beds have been put together now in a really first-class facility. You go in the door, you're assessed. You have a place to leave your personal belongings. There's medical attention, showers, laundry, food, common room, bed, monitored. You're not going to have a situation where you have to fight your way in or where you're left on your own. There's both integrity and credibility and love and respect and, and given by caring professionals who are going to be there all the time looking after people because that's their job. So it's not just about you know, finding a bed in, in some place for a person for the night. This is about giving services, dental mm. treatment, chiropathy, assistance with getting a medical card, food in the morning, showers, laundry, all these things that a person uh, needs. And if some of those have particular challenges, you follow now what they call housing first, and you get accommodation for them, but then wrap around that the services of caring professionals who look after them for all their needs. And we intend to keep working through the housing ministry and the agencies, the charities, Simon's, Focus, 
McFerry Trust and all these, so that these facilities are available for people and they're provided and looked after by caring professionals who know what they're doing. I talk a lot about this with Dermot Lacey, he's the Labour Party Dublin City mm -hmm. Councillor, I don't know if you know, Dermot, yeah. he's always very critical of the Department of the Environment. Now going back 20, 30 years, mm -hmm. you know, it's not a, a party sure. political thing, and saying look they just lost interest in building houses, you know, 20 years ago, there was actually a policy they're too expensive to maintain. This is not a good game for the state to be in, sold off the housing stock. Do you think is that still the mindset? Or well, has there been a genuine change the 19, of heart? In the 1970s and the 80s, when Jimmy Tully got rest and was minister for, for houses for local government, you actually had more houses than you needed with what they called social housing now, council housing then. So you had empty empty houses in different estates because there weren't people to take them up. Hmm. That's all changed. And then 10 years ago, when the construction sector collapsed completely, you lost 100,000 jobs, ghost estates, no houses built, economy collapsed. To start that massive engine takes a great deal of effort and patience, and it's got to be one that's going to be done properly. But it's also about building communities and opportunities mm -hmm. where families can grow. But if you build you know, 2,000 houses, you've got to have schools, you've got to have services, footpath, lighting, transport, facilities, shops, and all of these things. So it's about planning. Now, if you continue on over the next 20 years with the way Dublin is moving, kind of, you know, north, northwest, west, uh, southeast, and so, and so on, you're moving like a carpet out across Leinster. So if your country is going to have an extra million people in 25 years, what are you going to do about your roads, about your power, communications? Where are you going to put your towns? Will they be beside the railheads? Are you going to have them sprinkled all over the country indiscriminately or whatever? This requires planning and looking down on Ireland from above. And is that conversation taking place yes. in government? And not only <coughs> that, that's why I changed the uh, appointments here and you have the Minister for Housing, uh, which is a senior position with Simon Coveney in, 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 the seat, in that ministry. And environment has been shifted in terms of a climate change responsibility over to, to Minister Nocton. So we need all the local authorities and the elected representatives and the department to look down at Ireland and where we want it to be in 25 years' time. Uh, and that's in a, in, a, in, a, in a world that's changing rapidly. So it's not just about do the same as we always did. That would not work. Mm -hmm. If the M50 is now choked with cars, what's it going to be like in 20 years if you continue to expand in the way we have been expanding now? So you need obviously the cross uh, city Lewis being joined up, the light rail system plans for that over the next 10-15 years. These are things that you need to plan for and plan carefully about. So you met the Pope? I did. What's he like? Uh, there's a particular presence about uh, Pope Francis. Mm. Um, I have to say um, Fanula and I were privileged to meet uh, the Pope. Uh, I had never been to the papal apartments before. What's it like? Well, they're there since 1500 and every square inch is covered in all of the, all of the paintings and the dramatic backdrops and so on. But I have to say, Pope Francis is not the kind of person who wants to be in those circumstances mm -hmm. all the time. He came from Buenos Aires, he does not live in the papal apartments. He wants to move his church back to the people, to the poor. Uh, he's a very different kind of man. I have to say, talking to him, there is a particular aura about him um, and 
Obviously, he made the decision to come here to Ireland in 2018 for the World Convention of Families. Were you glad he did that? Oh, well, it's his choice, of course, mm. and I have said to him that insofar as the government is concerned, we will respect that and uh, uh, treat him as head of head of the Vatican, head of the state, of course, but also as head of the head of the Catholic Church. And I think his visit, when it does happen, will be different than Pope John Paul mm. II in '79. Ireland's a very different country now, and I think big big numbers will turn out, but it may have a different a different uh, understanding and respect for the Pope and for the difficult job that he has to do. Uh, so I, I found him to be quite an extraordinary I person and presence. I if can't I, if I might help that way. worrying because he seems to me to be all those things. He mm -hmm. really does seem to be something mm -hmm. different and to be genuine. But I remember when, I'm afraid I'm too, actually am old enough to remember when John Paul II became Pope and there was that huge excitement, the non-Italian Pope, the guy who would help bring down communism, he seemed to be really in touch with young people. Then it turned out he was actually this arch-conservative and he kept in place bishops and cardinals who'd been known to be involved in abuse. And Tony Blair, when he came in, it was so exciting, it was like this new mm -hmm. dawn and mm -hmm. even Obama. And then mm -hmm. Blair had his war and, you know, Obama's done some things, but it still feels like a bit of an anticlimax. Do you think we put too much hope in leaders? Expect well, I, too I much? Think, I think hope is, a, is always a very important principle um, that you create that sense of excitement for people. Always difficult to follow it through and live mm. up to it to the extent that they might that they might expect. We had Pope Benedict after John Paul II, and now Pope uh, and now Pope Francis. But he is different, and uh, I think he's a very different, a very different kind of personality. And there is there is that. Can you see in your lifetime maybe priests being allowed to marry or women priests or anything like that? I've, I've already that's been my view for very many years mm. that you should have uh, you should have uh, women priests, but that's not my call. <laughs> and I think I think um, Pope Francis has has said that this was laid down by John Paul II. But you know, uh, in 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 a world population that is that is to increase by a billion again in the, in the years ahead. Uh, church under pressure, uh, family life is very important and there should always be uh, a role and an understanding of the equality and the importance of the place of women. So I, I mean, you know, with, with the grace of respect, when you look at the difficulties that the Catholic Church has had, for instance, all of the issues that were swept under the, under the table, at least from my perspective, the relationship between church and state uh, is very clear now and we work well together in the interests of everybody. Uh, different laws now, different requirements, different monitoring, different systems for the protection of children and all of that. And the Pope has made it very clear where he stands uh, on, on, the, on the question of abuse of children or sexual abuse where members of the clergy might be involved. So in that sense, you know, your church is about everybody. Uh, I'm a Catholic, admittedly not the best Catholic. Um, but in that do sense, you go to mass regularly? I do. I don't yeah. go to mass. I don't get. I don't get to mass every Sunday. But yeah. I, of course I do. And and, and uh, some very good friends who are who are members of the of the priesthood and they say, well, listen, we do the best we can. What do you think the church is going to look like? You know, so I go to mass, mm -hmm. and so it's Christmas Eve. Mm -hmm. The place will be jammers. But then the rest of the year, the normal yeah. Saturday nights, there's nobody yeah. there. And I often think, I don't think people are going to realize. Mm -hmm 
what they've missed until it's actually gone, until yeah. there's no baptism and they have mm -hmm. to wait two weeks for a funeral because there's mm -hmm. no priest. And you can see the age profile of priests in Ireland is, is uh, of the higher level now. You haven't that many young priests moving through. And yet, when, when, you, when you talk to priests who really make a difference in their parishes, they work with the communities, with the, with the young and the not so young, and they really do make an impact. See, the Catholic Church understands death. It understands it very well. And in that sense, there's always that comfort from priests who care for families, and it's a source of great consolation for people who have tragedies inflicted upon them by accident or whatever the situation might be. Uh, and I think that's an, that's an important element. You know, a, um, a strong leader priest can make a huge impact on parishes, urban or rural. And one priest said to me recently, he said, you know, while they say there are a lot of young people, you know, don't go to mass and don't involve themselves, he said, when you need them, they're there. Yeah. And isn't that a wonderful sort of, if you like, Christian Irish principle that is inside them? If you really need them, they will be there. And when I see young people all over the country where incidents might have occurred or whatever else, the sort of understanding they have in their relationships with others are very strong. I recall down the west where a young man lost his life abroad and uh, uh, was drowned and uh, all, his, um, all his teammates uh, turned up for the funeral and they all went up and touched the coffin themselves individually. So there's, there's that sort of, there's that appreciation I think of what life is and at the end of the day just how you know, temporary it can be depending on mm. what might happen. I'm chatting to Antishak Enda Kenny in his office. I put it to him that many Fine Gael voters thought that putting this coalition together was a terrible mistake for Fine Gael and he should have gone back to the country. You are in government, you have a responsibility to say, I am going to try to put a government together. So I offered Fianna Fáil a full parity at government level, 7-7, seven, seven, and move the job around. And I got a full endorsement from the Fine Gael party to do that. But it wasn't possible uh, for Fianna Fáil to be able to, to comply on the other side. So that was their party position and I understand that and respect it. So that was the option. You can either forget about it and say, I've had enough, let's go to the country again, or put a government together. So we put it together. People said, you'll never get near a budget. You'll never be able to pass a budget. You'll never be able to pass any legislation. And yet, unemployment is down to 7.2. You have a 4% growth. You're managing the economy prudently in the interest of the people. You have over 2 million people working. You have visible signs of an improving, of an improving economy. And yet, obviously, there are still challenges, homelessness and all the rest of it. And call it what you will, but it's a, it's a public service uh, and a call to duty. And if you shirk it or you let it go, you grow into an old person and you'll say, you never had the courage when you had the opportunity. And, you know, just on talking about getting people back to work in that, you know, my husband is a civil engineer and 2008 mm -hmm. came, he'd been working on a government contract, everything shut down, you know. So he was unemployed for a couple of years and then he had to go abroad, you know, and it was tough. And he's back and he's got a job here and I'm yeah. working. And so we tick all the boxes mm -hmm. in terms of mm -hmm. their recovery. Mm -hmm. But I know I feel anyway that lumps were just gouged out of us. And... I don't mind that because mm -hmm. we were reared with the thing, no one owes mm -hmm. you a living, mm -hmm. you know, you, and you'll never have in your pocket mm -hmm. only what you earn yourself after a day's work and all of this mm -hmm. stuff. But what 
bothers me is the sense that systemically nothing changed. The merry-go-round just started up again. So David Begg was on the board of the central bank back then, and now it's Des Garrity. And there's just this sense that everybody just jumped mm. back on and the banks would do it no, all tomorrow it, and everybody do no, it tomorrow. No, I don't, I don't agree at all. No? Sarah, it has changed. How? Are you a better person now, having gone through life's experience with your ah. husband in that regard, than you were then? Like, you had a, a generation that was credit card generation. Everything was on the never-never, and then that all ended abruptly. People, this generation, your generation, have a very different view now. You're not going to blow it when you haven't got it. Uh, and when you have it, you're going to mind it for the future. But the rules have changed also, because you can't go in and get your 110% mortgage anymore. And you can't go in and buy, you know, 12 apartments on the mobile phone and just say, well, we'll find money somewhere. These things are all changed. And that's why it's important that the government make the decisions, you know, in terms of taxation and the budget to continue to manage that economy properly for people and in their interests so that your children and those coming after them are going to have a chance to have an opportunity in a life and a career here if they want or gain experience in other, in, in other lands. You know, fly east of here and see the situation in Greece where we were lumped in with Greece six years ago um, and obviously we made decisions that have moved us on. The, the people in Greece still face very serious challenges. Does that frustrate you when, like, do you remember when Varoufakis mm. got the job and the rock star minister and, you know, he had mm. the motorbike and he had all the sound bites and then six months later he was gone and actually delivered nothing. You know, are you convinced that the shoulder to the wheel is the only workable approach? Well, I, would say, I would say to you, you know, uh, if this were ever to happen again, the rules have changed because you're not going to have a situation where the taxpayer becomes the first port of call. And that happened because Ireland were first out the gap with a 64 billion mm. euro burden on our shoulders. And I would be the first to say, if you looked at what happened in America, when the recession hit after Lehman's went down and all of that, the, the Federal Reserve stuffed the banks with money, whether they liked it or whether they didn't. And that changed very quickly. Europe had a different view. In my view, it was four or five years behind the curve because it hadn't happened before in the way that it did. So I think, I think if, you were to, if you were starting on that route again, you would have much preferred if the European Central Bank had treated Ireland in a different way. But you were in that maw, as it, it were. Was it just our hard luck we were first? Well, obviously, you don't want to rehash old arguments, mm. but there were guarantees signed, which meant that, obviously, these things were not what they seemed. Uh, and you had a really difficult series of choices to make, and everybody suffered. And we would not be where we are today at the end of 2016 without the sacrifices of the people. Uh, and you know this. People in England, America, young people gone, jobs lost, construction sector collapse and all of that. And you have to rebuild all of that again. And the only way you can get it going really is when you have an engine to drive it, and that's the economy. So America and Britain, mm -hmm. like what a mess. What are we going to do? Well, you ask people in America and they'll say, well, we voted in a presidential election. However, in America, decisions impact globally. What are you going to do in respect of your, uh, your relations with other countries uh, globally, Far East, Near East, Middle East, and so on like that? What are you going to do about your corporate taxes and all of that? These are decisions that they are entitled to make. So from a European point of view, um, the United Kingdom made their decision. We joined the same day as Britain back in the 70s. And this is the first time that a country has, has wished to leave. Hasn't happened before. 
So it's a, it's a very major issue with a very major country. And because of our connections with Northern Ireland yeah. and the island of Ireland and the United Kingdom, we're in a very particular place um, and we have to get this right. Can we get it right? We're going to make every effort to see that we do, but until we know what decisions we have to make, we can't negotiate. Mm. So what has to happen now is the British government and the Prime Minister will move what they call Article 50 uh, before the end of March. At that stage, we will then know what relationship Britain wants with the European Union of the future. We will be staying on the side of the European Union. We have very close connections and good relations with London and with Belfast. We want to retain those issues. Yeah, I believe there's a lot of um, really good connections because of the peace process between all the yep. different institutions. Do you think there is an opportunity, now maybe you're limited in what you can say on this, mm -hmm. for Ireland to be even on an informal level, a go-between in the negotiations? No, Ireland no. would be part of the negotiations on the European team mm. because we're staying with Europe. But I've already agreed, after having visited Downing Street, that in, in regard to Northern Ireland, there will be no return to a hard border. And in regard to the United Kingdom, there will be no diminution of the benefits arising from the common travel area. The common travel area has been there for mm. years and years and years. Mm applied since 1922 and it means that you, Sarah Carey, could go to England or somebody from England could come here without restriction and you could also work. So it wasn't just a common travel area, I feel like it was a common work opportunity as well. How many Irish people, the navvies, went to England, built the motorways and the cities and the railways and the docks? And, and I believe the English are the largest <coughs> immigrant population here in Ireland. Well, there are a very substantial yeah. number of English people live here. So we want to retain those mm -hmm. rights for them and we want to retain our rights for our people living in England. Mm -hmm. The Prime Minister agrees with this. Irish people can vote in the British elections. What do, what do you referendum. make of Theresa May? Um, I've met her now a few times, once formally in Downing Street uh, and at uh, two, three European Council meetings. Yeah. She's the British Prime Minister. I respect her. Um, obviously, I, I haven't worked with her, you know, over a period of years. Uh, the Thornister, Francis Fitzgerald, would have worked with Theresa May as, yeah. as, um, as uh, Secretary of uh, Home Affairs uh, and, and would have met her at all of the European meetings. Mm. Um, she's, you know, she's a fine speaker. I think she understands exactly how she's articulating what her mm. uh, proposal is. And, you know, she won't clarify that until she moves Article 50. So I get on very well with her. Um, we have Seba good relations with, Sebastian with her Hamilton, he's the editor of the Irish mm -hmm. Daily Mail. He was on my show and he knows David Davis and these other characters. And he said, they really believe, like they fundamentally believe that the UK will be fine on its own. They're not intimidated by this. Like this is what they yeah, believe. Well, in fairness to them, they were on the side of Brexit. Yeah. Um, and um, the Prime Minister has put them in charge of various elements of that. But you see, there are always issues. Because if you want to have access to the single market of Europe, that is 500 million people, you have to say, we are accepting the fundamental yeah, freedom of movement. That's people. what I think is crackers. Yeah. They still have to pay. They'll still mm -hmm. have to obey everything. They mm -hmm. just won't have a seat at the table. So well, you wonder what it was all for yeah. anyway. Well, until they actually are removed completely from the European Union, they will continue to be, you know, full members, pay their way and accept their responsibilities. When they leave, and this is where the, uh, where the negotiations will take place, what do they want to do? Do they want to have access to sell their goods into that market? And if they do, they must allow for some, uh, for the freedom of movement of people, and Europe will not concede on that. Now, 
if they don't want to have access to the single market, well, then that creates a different problem. Mm. And if they want to remove themselves from what they call the uh, customs union, that creates a different set of challenges. Can you see you any see circumstances where they just admit it was all a terrible mistake and have another referendum, like we do? No, the government have made a decision and uh, the High Court have ruled that uh, in England that you must have reference to the Commons. They had a vote in the Commons. Yeah. The High Court's decision is being appealed. So they're moving on to make the decision. Yeah. So, you know, Europe has responded here by setting up a task force headed up by former Commissioner Michel Barnier. He's going on to all the countries. But they can't start negotiating until mm. they know what they're yeah. going to negotiate on. Just on the, the wider question, like when you see people voting for Trump and voting for Brexit, mm. and they look like self-harming decisions, do you get a sense when you're meeting other world leaders that they're going to have to change their way of doing business? Well, you describe this as a self-harming decision. It's a democratic decision made in the United Kingdom and a democratic decision made in America. But it doesn't look like a very good no, decision. No, the people's votes, except that more people voted for one than for the other, for one question. More people voted to leave, for Britain to leave the, the European Union. And are you really that neutral on it? That you just well, go, you know no, what? I, no, you see, in, in Ireland here, we're not neutral at all. We are staying in Europe. And back in the middle of the recession, the Irish people voted... 60-40 in favour of the Fiscal Stability Treaty. We had two goes at the Lisbon Treaty yeah. because that was such a big treaty that people had genuine issues about abortion and neutrality. And we got guarantees written into the treaty to protect that. But I don't speak for the uh, electorate in the UK. And as I said, the different countries voted different ways. But the overall vote was to leave. So the question was, do you want to stay or do you want to leave? And more people voted to leave because it was a referendum. Right, in America, they said, do you want to vote for, you know, uh, Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton? And while more people voted for Hillary Clinton, the Electoral College system meant that uh, Donald Trump won the United yeah, States. Yeah, but when you see... That's their decision. I know, but when you see that it looks like a choice between mm -hmm. the establishment mm -hmm. versus the outlier, no matter how crazy he appears to be, and that's my terminology, not yours, um, <laughs> we'll stress that. Are the Democrats and are the Tories, are the Christian Democratic Party, are Prime Ministers around Europe saying, huh, the people are starting to vote against us, even though we think we've been doing all well, these relatively you've, good you've things. What are we doing you've, wrong? You've had this wave of populism across Europe. Okay, they've had you know, two elections in Spain in 12 months. Okay, they've, Mariano Rajoy has formed uh, a minority government. Uh, it's much the same as you have here. The opposition parties support him in government on certain issues. Okay, you have the French elections coming next year. Uh, you have a right-wing candidate saying, I will take France out of the euro if I win. Um, okay, you have to have a successor to President Hollande to stand along with uh, François Fillon. Prime Minister Renzi retired in, uh, resigned in, um, in Italy. Because yeah, a, a, he couldn't get his referendum through. A constitutional through. issue, it wasn't yeah. on the, not on the European, on a constitutional issue, and he resigned on that. You're going to have elections in the Netherlands, and then you have elections in Germany. The government in Estonia has changed in the last month, yeah. and the government in Bulgaria will change in the next month. So, like, here we are in Ireland, you know, the Fine Gael party was the largest in the last government, it's the largest in this government, but it's a partnership government, just not a dictatorship. I cannot go down to the doll and say, these are the three things I'm doing here. Would you like to? Well, <laughs> no, I, I, no, because I think it, it is important that the result of the election, actually, um, Sarah, has meant that you have to listen 
more carefully to different voices. And do you think the establishment across Europe and, you know, in the American democratic establishment I, is doing that seriously I now? think that, I, I, well, I, I know this, if you allow a situation where 50% of your young people are unemployed, that's a recipe for disaster. Because if young people particularly have neither hope nor inspiration nor aspiration, if you don't give them the opportunity, they become cynical, frustrated, angry, and it leads to extremism on either side. And is Ireland spared that because we've got the valve, the safety valve of immigration? Well, we've m made the political decision uh, that have counted here and that, uh, that um, unemployment has reduced from 15.3 to 7.3 mm. with over 2 million working. Now we've always been a nation, you know, where people went to America and doing it, and young people still go because of and your own you know, children do yes, a lust to yeah. travel and they want to yeah. you know yeah. gain new experiences. Mm. I think that's important, but in a situation where many in uh, Europe, uh, where you have very high percentages of unemployed young people, that is not a good situation, and that can only be dealt with by uh, governments making decisions that can allow for investment in infrastructure, for opportunity for education, uh, for businesses to be set up, and for people to be employed. And that's where you make your, that's where you make your, your progress. And I, I've often said this, Europe needs to move forward. It's got you know, 27 countries, 28 at the moment, 27 to be. It's got to make decisions now as to where it sees itself in 5, 10, 15, 20 years hence. It is one of the most developed regions on the planet. We have great trading relationships and opportunities to build on those for the future in a world that's going to grow in serious population numbers in the next 20 years. You've got to make decisions, political decisions, that help those millions of people in every country. We try to make our decisions here to help ours. It's Christmas Eve. Anything you want to say to people this weekend? Well, first of all, I want to say that I hope that everybody gets home safely in their travels. Um, we always send out a message uh, to be responsible on the road. If you're a pedestrian, make sure that you're on the right side, that you've got your lighted gear and your high-vis jackets and be safe and be seen. The same applies if you're a cyclist. And if you're a motorist, understand that you can never get behind the wheel of a car if you have drink taken, and if you're a law-abiding citizen, to be responsible in your travels. And for the children, I hope that Santa, that the engines on the sleigh don't seize up, and that the weather is not too cold up around the North Pole, because he's got a very, very busy night ahead of him, getting around to all the houses in Ireland, but he'll only come to children who are really good. So they've got to get down under those clothes, and when, when the Christmas lights are shining, be down there because he's going to come. And I hope that he brings them all the little things that they've written for over the last number of weeks. Because Christmas is a very special time for children. It's a very magical time. And I hope they all enjoy it very much. Now we're sitting here in your very nice office. And I have a funny feeling you're going to be sitting in here next Christmas Eve as well. <laughs> do you well, share that? Of course I do. And I intend to send out the same message. And I hope that the message from this year will be, will be, uh, will be followed through.
And that was Antishak Endekeni. Many thanks to him for his time. The full interview will be on Newstalk.com and you can download it from the fancy new Newstalk app. I want to say a special thanks to Talking Point listeners. We got brilliant feedback all year and I really appreciate it. So I hope you have a peaceful and happy Christmas and I'm going to leave you now with the choir of the staff of the Department of Antishak featuring the Taoiseach singing Adeste Fidelis. Happy Christmas.